0: Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 30th of November 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern Approaches from the Netherlands, and also Debbie Evans, our nursing correspondent. Okay, we'll get straight on with uh, digital identity. And uh, here we go. Uh, Well, it's Britain
1: plus Ukraine. Apparently, so the UK and Ukraine today are agreeing a groundbreaking new digital trade agreement, which is going to help Ukraine rebuild its economy and support livelihoods following Russia's illegal invasion, according to the press release. It's fantastic stuff. Uh, So Kim Badnock and Ukraine's first deputy prime minister are getting together Uh, And uh, this is following a world-leading agreement with Singapore, which was finalised earlier in the year. Uh, And the the negotiators worked at record pace uh, with Ukrainian counterparts to deliver a deal after the Ukrainian government highlighted the important role Ukraine's first ever digitally-focused trade agreement could play in bolstering the country's
0: economy. You would have thought that uh, Ukraine was busy trying to fight a war at the moment but they are a powerhouse as we're going to see so
1: they are indeed Uh, so let's bring kim badnock on screen here she is Uh, this landmark trade deal agreed today between our two countries paves the way for a new era of modern trade between us Uh, and uh, the first deputy prime minister of ukraine said ukraine believes that an open and free framework for the digital economy is the best investment in future-oriented development. But here's the thing, Uh, this is all about digital ID. For example, there's a critical need for people to be able to use digital solutions to prove they are who they say they are, despite the loss of critical documentation or displacement across borders, is what the press release said. So let's just remind ourselves uh, what the UK's vision of digital identity is. It's all about each of us having a wallet uh, and pieces of information held in that wallet called attributes, and that might be your, your legal name. Uh, it might be your date of birth. It might be your right to reside, to work or to study. It might be details from organizations such as professional qualifications, employment history, this type of thing. And of course, this is all prerequisite to central bank digital currencies. Uh, and uh, it's all been, we've all been softened up for this uh, throughout the COVID uh, process. Um, Now, of course, it doesn't all go terribly well, Uh, sometimes it goes to hell. And this is a story from Australia from a few weeks ago uh, in Security Week. Hackers leak Australian health records on dark web. This is five, uh, sorry, 10 million customers, customers of the Australian health uh, insurer uh, Medibank Medibank, Uh, and uh, apparently Medibank released a spreadsheet uh, which contained passwords. Uh, to which enabled people the the hackers and inverted commas to access this data. For 10 million customers that's now doing the rounds on the dark web i just want to remind everybody to have a look at these articles on the uk column website on this so we've got this one from mark edwards in 2017 mark of the beast digital identity and the cashless cartel Uh, we've got the races on a new digital financial identity for every global citizen from bernice bartels in 2017 Uh, entry point uh, from bernice bartels in 2017 And of course, and Vanessa's article, COVID 19 the big pharma players behind UK government lockdown from 2020, which uh, covers this topic as well.
0: So nobody's going to be saying that the UK column didn't warn them.
1: No, indeed. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, of course, yesterday was announced that the new version of the online safety bill is uh, coming online. Uh, and uh, well, this is the Telegraph article here. Social media giants face multimillion pound fines if they fail, fail to ban child accounts. Uh, and the reason I'm highlighting this article is because actually once you get halfway down the page, you discover that it's written by or the main part of it is written by Michelle Donelan, the Culture Secretary. And the title of that is our values should be dictated by us, not Silicon Valley. So let's just briefly have a look at what she's saying. When I became digital secretary, she says, I set a red line on the child protection measures in the bill vowing to protect and strengthen them. When it returns, the bill will contain even stronger protections from children, for children combined with user rights protections for adults that inject genuine choice for users. Uh, I've also strengthened the legislation to help tackle absurd situation we have with age limits. Some platforms claim they don't allow anyone under 13. Any parent will tell you that this is nonsense. Some platforms claim not to allow children, but simultaneously have adverts targeting children. Uh, The legislation now compels companies to be much clearer about how they enforce their own age limits. Now, how are they gonna do that? this is going to require some form of digital ID and this is really what this is all about. So the legal but harmful clauses in the bill, in my view, violated the rights of adults to choose what legal speech they see and hear, uh, sorry, say and see. Uh, So I've uh, removed legal but harmful in favour of a new system based on choice and freedom. So let's have a look at this new system. Uh, This is what they're calling it, the triple shield. Uh, So the first shield is for adults and it's all about greater control, they say. The second shield is reinforcing the freedom of speech for adults, uh, and it's apparently going to make platforms accountable. So let's look at how they're gonna do that. Uh, As private companies, tech platforms will remain free to set any terms of service they wish. The changes mean companies must keep their promises to users and consistently enforce their user safety policies once and for all. So they may have removed the legal but harmful clause from the bill but they're just pushing the issue back onto the tech companies uh, and the tech companies terms and conditions. Uh, So there'll be no statutory uh, requirement for dealing with legal but but harmful content uh, unless it's part of the terms and conditions. Let's continue. Uh, For example, if a platform says in the terms of service that it does not allow a particular type of legal content such as racist and homophobic abuse or harmful health information, then it must act then it must act to tackle it uh, ofcom will be empowered to take unprecedented action including levying fines totalling up to 10% of annual turnover so they are uh, refocusing the online safety bill claiming that it's more and more uh, more than ever about child safety when in fact it's about in fact imposing uh, a digital identity uh, regime uh, and also pushing the legal but harmful uh, aspect of it away from the legislation itself, direct legislation, back under the terms and conditions of the uh, service provider. Uh, let's continue. The other new offences uh, on false and threatening communications will remain in the bill. The false communications offence will protect individuals from any communications where the sender intended to cause harm by sending something knowingly false. So Alex, I'd be very interested in your thoughts on this. How do they prove? Intention to cause harm, uh, and how do they prove that that someone knew something was false?
2: In court, that can only be done in the common law system by a prosecutor arguing and proving those points. Every point argued in a common law jurisdiction actually has to have evidence furnished for it, or if the court's being run lawfully, it won't be allowed into the record, even if the defence. Uh, don't object and say this has not been proven, you know, so things asserted stand until the other side say otherwise. Uh, the aim, of course, will be to bamboozle a jury uh, to the extent that juries are allowed in here because they've been removed in England from uh, libel, uh, an adjacent area of law, not that long ago. But the idea will be to get juries to be bamboozled into thinking that they must find that there was uh, this mens rea, an intent to harm, uh, because somebody with a wig or a suit on said so. It's really down to the quality of juries here, but, you know, intent to harm. Uh, and we've had this since the Public Order Act 1986, sections four and five that Charles Mallett has commented on recently. Uh, it's so subject to mission creep and redefinition, uh, because these are, you know, the shocking nouns and adjectives used, harm, al- anxiety, um, uh, offence. They really don't have any proper definition other than a reasonable this passionate bystander. And that standard is now being removed in favor of prosecutors saying, uh, Mr. Strawman felt hurt by what was written here.
1: Yes. Um, So to answer the question that we were asking on Monday's program, uh, the question is, has legal but harmful, the concept of legal but harmful been scrapped? The answer is yes, but actually not really. So there we go.
0: We wait and see.
1: Well, uh, but Alex, uh, we wanted to start with, uh, with, this uh, no this is no sorry this one uh mariana spring um, these bbc panorama investigations i did reveal the terrible consequences of legal but harmful content online Uh, hate targeting women conspiracies directed at terror survivors Uh, violence promoted to teens those i spoke to now ask how the online safety bill will protect them uh what are your thoughts on that tweet from mariana
2: well she's quite patently aligning herself with the security state there. She might as well be another BBC security correspondent at this point. You know, sources tell me uh, that this will be good uh, to keep the public safe. She is supposed to be a disinformation specialist to give her her formal title. But look at uh, what Craig Evans replies and uh, Craig Evans is actually an old fashioned communist in his Twitter profile. Uh, that's why he's using the um, uh, Noam Chomsky phrase manufacturing consent although Chomsky himself has drifted in, in his views. But look here, Craig Evans replies to Mariana Spring, you are manufacturing consent for internet censorship under the guise of protecting vulnerable people. Uh, I think that's uh, you know hitting the nail on the head there. The timing is rather suspect, isn't it? We've gone on about this for months and others are seeing it now. Think about the children, that old Simpsons phrase, uh, is really being dangled in front of people now as an excuse uh, for censoring. Uh, it is almost as if nobody had read John Milton's Areopa one of the first, the finest works in English, pleading for the, the freedom of the press. And if you manage to rejig the slides, I have a couple more uh, just indicating that uh, quickly. Uh, this is because I go trawling Twitter occasionally for mentions of UK Column. Uh, people often think that they can speak to us by tagging us on Twitter. No, well, we don't have the manpower for that, but we try to. Uh, but I'm just coming up across uh, a couple of things there. So if you've got um the couple of slides back i'll go back and uh find that there we are uh, here is uh, let's put that one on screen um sorry going back one there we are uh here is somebody saying that uk column uh, tracked the fear operation in real time and they also identified most of the people who were creating and running the operation under the cabinet office uh that was one in, uh, illustration uh, of you know why why we actually uh, persist in in presenting what we're often accused of, of being one-sided in. I think the question we're we're coming to here is: Are we opinion merchants or not? And we'll see if we get the slides in the right order to put the next one on. Now that one seems to have disappeared, but I'll just read it out. Um, uh, somebody has said uh, on Twitter, which I know is only a subsection of, of real life, uh, that they found UK column very informative and less biased than the BBC and right on so many things. And uh, here we are. Thank you for finding that. Um, Here, somebody more aligned with what Mariana Spring and the BBC are pumping into them has replied this, and this goes right back to regulation, whether it's press or of the of the platforms. Henrietta Black replies rather wrongheadedly. What do you mean that UK Column is right on so many things? Opinion channels are biased by their presenters or owners. Without being a member of a regulatory body, or in this new version that you just presented, Mike, without being under the umbrella of a self centering tech platform, no one can call them out for being biased, which they clearly are. Uh, you're, just, you're just seeing how how this is drifting now, because all the things we were talking about for the last few years, digital identity, the harms of jabs, are things that regulated press and self centering tech platforms wouldn't touch, and they would ban us if we spoke about. So the, the, the things are getting a bit circular, and one more that belongs with that uh, section is the one that people have got a, a preview of, of the, uh, uh, the Canadian Member of Parliament. Uh, well, that, in, in first we have this one. Andy Hewitt says that it's incredible, and this is because we were not regulated uh, by uh, corrupt and, uh, uh, and self-serving regulators. It's incredible how spot on with our analysis we were from the outset. And that was regard, with regard to COVID being declared a high consequence infectious disease. And then that being removed four days before the first lockdown or look up. As, uh, as 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 Debbie's keen to call it. Uh, here's another one uh, from someone abroad. You have to be outside the UK to realize how much we're all manipulated by the media. Think of that tweet there and its timing by Mariana Spring. We're constantly lied to, says Nazar Kolar. In, in uh, amplification of that, Christina Ashcroft says, exactly, listen to UK column news. That's where the truth is. This sentiment is clearly being shared by a lot of people. And this, I think, uh, sorry, uh, uh, we've got out of sequence, but there was also a Canadian MP uh, very recently uh you know saying uh, in parliament uh, that there are no such things as new media uh, everything that's uh, come on to the news scene online in the last few years she says is opinion only so this is really this regulatory capture has even affected the minds of parliamentarians who set the standards uh, and in britain we have the same hence the current framing it's uh,
1: the decision by uh the the decision by the ambulance workers to go on strike. So um, this is uh, unison. Uh, The decision to take action and lose a day's pay is tough, but thousands of ambulance staff and NHS colleagues, no delays won't lessen uh, nor waiting times reduce until the government acts on wages. That's why they've taken the difficult decision to strike. So apparently uh, five of the ten ambulance regions have decided to go on strike. Uh, and uh, Unison is only one of three unions that represent ambulance staff, of course. Um, So not everybody is going to be going on strike on this. Uh, But Debbie, maybe I get your thoughts on this, because it seems to me that uh, uh, with ambulance uh, ambulance people going on strike at this point in time when uh, waiting lists to get into hospital are so long, I'm talking about emergency uh, access to hospital, Uh, is taking so long and people queuing up in ambulances outside hospitals at the moment. This isn't going to help. But at the end of the day, they are are attempting to highlight this issue. Uh, They're saying that pay is the main reason why there are these backlogs uh, with getting people to uh, accident and emergency. I'm not sure that's entirely the case, but um, I can understand the frustration and their need to to take action. Um, Yeah, good
3: afternoon. with regards to the ambulance and paramedics, you know, nurses traditionally, we've always had a really good, good, great and continue to have a great relationship with paramedics. We work hand in hand with each other. And I'm just going to say it, actually, I'm just going to come out and say, it, in my opinion, I believe that Unison, who are representing the ambulance workers and the RCN, and we'll come on to this in this in, in, in a bit, who are representing the nurses, I believe they're gaslighting them. You know, I I don't believe the nurses or the ambulance workers, yes, of course, pay is part of the the problem, but it's certainly not all of the problem. This is about patient safety, and this isn't actually about us, us having loads of people that are leaving the NHS. They're being driven out of the NHS, by the NHS, deliberately. So. I see why the paramedics, I mean, they're not doing the jobs that they're meant to be doing. They're they're cohorting patients in corridors. We have ambulance corridors now. These are highly qualified, highly skilled people, and we're losing them in droves. And instead of talking about pay, we need to be talking about why are they striking? Why are they leaving? Because I think they're being gaslit by their unions.
1: Um, okay, so we've got a bit of a, a clip from uh, the Royal College of Nursing here, and this is from a couple of weeks ago when they were announcing the nursing strikes, I believe.
3: Yeah, it, it is. It's um, I pulled this bit of clip because it shows Pat Cullen, and I wanted everybody to meet Pat Cullen, who's the um, head of the RCN. She's a, a psychiatric nurse by trade. She says that nursing's in her blood. Um, well, we've probably got the slightly different blood groups here, because I pulled out uh, a piece for her, for you to hear, because again, we're getting this same message, pay. And I don't believe as a nurse, and as the nurses that I've spoken to, I don't believe this is all about pay, not for one minute, but have a listen to what she says.
4: Members, you can be very proud. These results are strong and they are clear. We've now entered a defining moment in our history and our fight will continue as long as it takes to win justice for the nursing profession and for our patients. I know you felt a range of emotions when voting in this ballot. We don't want to have to take strike action. It's always our last resort, but we've been left with no other choice. I also know that some of you will be disappointed that your place of work despite the hardest of campaigning, has narrowly missed out this time. But for the first time in the Royal College of Nursing's 106 year history, members in hundreds of NHS workplaces across the UK are now able to take action. There are two things to keep in mind as we enter the next phase of our campaign. The first is that your patients will be kept safe. We are doing this for them too. The second is that governments and ministers have the power to stop this at any point by doing what's fair and what is right. I urge them to look in the mirror and ask, how long will they force nursing staff to follow this route? Members, we are entering a tough stage, but you can be proud, confident, and know the public is right with you. Thank you for what you've each done to get us here. Stay firm, stay together, and we will
3: win this. Now, Pat Cullen is about to leave. So she, in my opinion, is gaslighting and then she's going to disappear. And what they're actually doing is they're offering nurses tea and coffee. That's, that's actually the next stage of it is, Is we'll, we'll let you have some tea and coffee. This is not a pay deal. This is not, in my opinion, a tea and coffee deal. This is, we've, we have been historically not looking after nurses for years. In my day, we gave them accommodation if they needed it. And if they did need it, um, as well as accommodation, they would get transport to work. They would get crèche facilities, they'd get transport, but you know what? Nurses are quitting now. They're quitting not because of of the fact that they want to leave nursing, because they don't. The majority don't, and they're brokenhearted. They really are sad. They're being asked to do things that, in their opinion, are not safe. So where Pat Cullen's saying, your patients will be safe, your patients aren't safe now. That's why the nurses are being driven out. But we've got to look at why they're being driven out. What is motivating them to to, to be driven out? And, of course, many people have emailed me and said, you know, Rishi Sunak has announced that robots are going to replace nurses. And, of course, that's exactly what is going to happen. Robots, apparently, are going to replace the nurses that are being driven out. They're not striking. They're being driven to this, literally. And then if we go one stage on, we can see that, Actually, The Guardian, thank goodness, has highlighted patient safety. So, for once, we've got patient safety on the headlines, but this is really what the deal's about. But, oh, don't panic. Let's bring the army in. Well, really? Bringing the army in? Most, we've got armies of nurses out here, armies of nurses like me, that can't get back into the NHS because there's so much paperwork, it's so bureaucratic, and to be honest, I would be kicking off the second I walked onto a ward because I wouldn't be able to, to keep stum. I'd have to be able to practise safely, and that's not what nurses can do. Nurses need to be looked after, so do paramedics. Paramedics' job is not to look after patients in A&E corridor. They're highly skilled people. So if we're not going to bring the army in, who else are we going to bring in? Oh, I know. Let's bring in the international nurses and the refugee nurses we'll actually train those up. Now, this is very concerning for a number of reasons. Um, I've spoken very recently to Roy Lilly, and Roy Lilly is a very wise man. Uh, Some of the things we may disagree with, but on this, this is absolutely, Nepalese nurses are are being recruited in from the United Kingdom. And yet it's on a World Health Organization, not that I think that much of the World Health Organization, however, it's on a WHO red list, which means that there aren't enough Nepalese nurses in Nepal to service their population. So they're not really allowed to be shipped out to different countries, but for some reason we've we've shipped them out. But not only that, we're getting transition nurses. So we're getting nurses in from Nigeria, we're getting migrant nurses, refugee nurses, All of these people to replace the nurses, our homegrown nurses that are being driven out. And of course, these these inexperienced, possibly underqualified nurses that may not be able to speak English, won't be able to challenge the system like us old school nurses would like to do. So, you know, this is getting beyond a joke. And we've even got to the point now where we're telling GPs or GPs are telling patients to call a cab. Don't, don't wait for an ambulance, call an Uber. Well, you know what? If you're on the floor, you've had a stroke, you've had a heart attack, how are you gonna get in the back of a cab? Does a cab have a blue light on it? What happens if the driver's distracted? Has anybody thought this through? It's completely insane. I mean, what more can I say? I mean, this is going to be a Christmas that we'll never forget because there isn't going to be, well, the health service has gone, but what there is left is 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 also going to be gone in December, just before Christmas, at Overwhelm.
0: Uh, Debbie, if I may, I'll just respond to that and say my opinion. This has been extremely well thought thought through because the objective is to create the chaos and the breakdown in the NHS. This is another step that's being taken to create that breakdown. So it's deliberate, it's calculated, it's orchestrated. And if we remember some years ago, the um, uh, Tory Danny Kruger spoke out publicly. It was reported certainly in The Guardian when he said that the Tories planned to introduce a period of what they called creative destruction in the public sector. And what he explained um, around that statement was the idea was to have transformational change but first you had to destroy existing arrangements and this is what the Tories under Rishi Sunak now are doing but this policy has been running for a great many years uh, but don't worry it, don't worry it's all
1: fine because here we go uh, injecting hope uh, the race for covid-19 vaccine if you were unconvinced about how fantastic covid-19 vaccines have been Uh, You just need to go to this event. It's being held at the Science Museum uh, and it's all about how do you develop a vaccine quickly and effectively to combat a global pandemic. And the really wonderful thing, and I hope everybody understands uh, this this little section is dripping with sarcasm, but the really wonderful thing about this event is that there is a centrepiece, a a, a sculpture made of multiple layers of glass of a coronavirus uh, for you to go and see and you can see it in it, all its three-dimensional glory. It's going to be fantastic. Who's behind this? Uh, well, it is the Wellcome Trust and also the Huo Family, uh, well, Alex can correct me if I've pronounced that, pronounced that incorrectly, Family Foundation uh, are the major funders uh, for this. But it's not just for the UK. It's going other places as well. It's going to Delhi. It's going to China. It's going to other places. Um, and it's all about Injecting
0: hope. So I hope everybody is uh, suitably impressed Well, this this is another psychological mind game. Debbie's used the expression gaslighting twice But we know that the government is using applied psychology to uh, Change the way people think and behave and now we're seeing this spreading in all of the Organizations connected with the government welcome trust is just one of many using these sorts of techniques
1: Uh, but Alex just very briefly I mean the thing that I'm I suppose most concerned about is this is being presented in the science museum as science Uh, in fact it is a total propaganda piece because it's all about building a narrative towards well Debbie's going to come on to life sciences again a little bit uh, uh, in in a little bit but this is all about developing a market for the new generation of uh, pharmaceuticals
2: Yes, but the entire concept of not just the science museum, but all of those museums in South Kensington and, and in other parts of the country that focus on human progress, they've all fallen victim to it. Now, I know we get some flack by talking about this as being parts of cultural Marxism, but it does overlap or intersect, as they say these days, uh, with critical race theory and all of this stuff. And um, I went there with my wife, wife pretty recently, particularly to see, as she's a medic, uh, those galleries and... They may have whisked them away in the meantime, but there was a display there on the yellow card scheme, its origins in the thalidomide scandal. But you could see that anything pre 90s, pre 2000 at most was, you know, giving the facts about medical blunders and what we learned from them and Britain's glorious heritage in in benefiting the world uh, in medical pioneering. From about 2000 onwards, it very much becomes selling the narrative. And there's very few sticklers of the history and philosophy of science left in the academic world Uh, who can tell this story, who are not in anyone's pocket. Just look at the disclosures of conflicts of interest in in, uh, papers. In fact, we have an example of that coming up in another slide.
1: Okay, thank you. And uh, Debbie, uh, let's uh, come on to stillbirths.
3: Yeah, um, you know what I'm like with board meetings. So as well as the MHRA board meetings, and I would just like to hint to everybody, please could you keep clicking on the MHRA board meetings? Not as many people are viewing them but I look at the NHS England board meetings too. This one took place in October 2022, so um, just last month. Now, on the right-hand side, that slide, you'll see that I've marked it with two arrows. You might not be able to see the names very clearly, but the first gentleman in the shot is the gentleman that you're just about to hear. And this is Professor Donald Peebles. He's consultant obstetrician um, at University College London. He's been Cambridge, etc. But You might also see another little red arrow, just um, the gentleman behind with white hair. That is Professor Munir per Mohammed. And as you know, I have written to Professor Munir per Mohammed for the Commission of Human Medicines many times about the safety of the vaccines, especially with regards to pregnant women. So when um, I look at the board meetings, I like to take notes of what people say. And as Brian quite rightly said, you did mention I keep mentioning the word gaslight, and I do, and you might be interested to know that as uh, Merriam-Webster, it's the word of the year, it was 1,740% increased of lookups. What I think you're about to see now is a professor, I mean, this is subjective, so people will see different things in it, but what I'm seeing is a very experienced, in the know, consultant, um, obstetrician, with a a great interest in embryology, gaslighting the whole of the board by telling him what I believe to be misinformation. Have a little look at this. It's a very short segment.
5: It's good to see that smoking rates have come down. So they're at their lowest rate. Um, uh, But despite that, um, uh, stillbirth rates, which have been falling year by year, and uh, last year's data suggested we're meeting the uh, national trajectory around halving stillbirths. Um, this year, the data just out from ONS shows that, there's, that they have increased. Um, that increase has happened, obviously, at a time, at the peak time of COVID. Um, I think we would be very cautious about identifying any split, particular cause of that increase in stillbirths. But of course, there is the effect of COVID itself, um, and then the access of mums to services uh, as a result of COVID, women being anxious about coming into services, and we know that services were running at very, very depleted uh, workforce levels. If that is all correct, then uh, one would anticipate that the stillbirth uh, rates uh, will continue to fall in subsequent years but I think we have to wait and see and it does uh, make us think about the importance of vaccination <laughs> um, here and in this particular group because it's mums who have severe Covid and we know from last time around that those were the, the ones who, who were not back. Thank you. Okay.
3: well that's not true we know that's not true um, Did you hear anybody trying to challenge him? Did you hear Professor munir Mohammed saying, well, there are some concerns over stillbirths. There are some concerns over the data that we're receiving. And uh, have there been any long-term studies? And should we be giving anything, anything to pregnant women? Absolutely not. And clearly from UK column yellow card data, um, and that, that links straight into the MHRA data, we're seeing a very different picture We're also seeing, that's the um, rise by the ONS um, on screen. And also, of course, you can see the fact checkers are really quick to come in. No, definitely not. Stillbirths have got nothing to do with um, the vaccinations. Of course not. So yet again, the NHS England board completely shut down. Everybody's nodding their heads when they're agreeing that pregnant women should be vaccinated. And um, I'm completely and utterly speechless to be honest, but I just wanted to highlight those NHS England board meetings because those two are very interesting. We'll be seeing more of them in the future.
0: Okay, uh, Debbie, thank you for that. Well, other people are clearly speechless or at least speaking out. I just picked up on a couple of clips uh, from social media. So the one on the left, if we bring it on screen, Justin Trudeau, it's safe, it's easy, it's free. Find out how you can keep your COVID-19 vaccinations up to date. Uh, but on the right, uh, we're going in a different direction. Uh, we've got Christine Anderson um, saying, this is how they're playing it now, question mark. US government post study on official website, which concludes adverse effects from mRNA injections due to stress caused by anti-vaxxers. Now I took the trouble to follow that through and we go to the US National Library of Medicine. And this report is absolutely real COVID-19 vaccinations and the misinterpretation of perceived side effects, clarity on the safety of vaccines. And if we get into the abstract, which is what you can see uh, easily on screen, uh, you quickly find um, a statement where it's talking about uh, stress and restriction of arteries. Uh, But the key bit is, is this therefore, If subjects are panicked, concerned, stressed or scared of the vaccination, their arteries will constrict and become smaller in and around the time of receiving the vaccine. This biological mechanism, the constriction of veins, arteries and vessels under mental stress, is the most likely cause for where there has been blood clots, strokes, heart attacks, dizziness, fainting blurred vision, loss of smell and taste, that may have been experienced shortly after vaccine administration. So the person could not believe that who tweeted this out. I can believe it because we're now starting to see desperate attempts to actually uh, obfuscate the clear evidence showing the risks of vaccinations. But I have to say this one really takes the biscuit, Mike. Mm. And uh, let's bring this one up on screen. And thank you very much to a UK Column viewer for sending this through. It's the Telegraph from a few days ago, Pfizer's CEO, rapped by the regulator for making misleading statements about children's vaccines. And this is Dr. Albert Bula. Um, And um, he was uh, commenting uh, on schools. He said, COVID in schools is thriving, adding this is disturbing significantly the educational system and there are kids that will have severe symptoms. Uh, But uh, basically um, he was challenged over the statement that uh, um, children's vaccines were safe and uh, this was described as disgracefully misleading. So it does appear that uh, comment from the public and others is starting to hit hit home.
1: Yes. Okay. If you uh, like what the UK column does and you would like to support us. Uh, please head over community.ukcolumn.org there are options to help us out there uh, or you could pick something up at the UK Column shop including Christmas voucher f- perhaps for a, m- a membership for a friend or family
0: very good idea
1: uh, but please do share a material you find on the various platforms okay
0: now we once again we're reminding people that in France there's a lot of people doing their bit to warn about the dangers of Covid Uh, vaccinations. So we put up this poster for an event which is actually planned in a number of uh, different areas across France on the 10th of December 2022. Uh, You can freeze your screen to have a look at some of the detail here. I was only able just to take a couple of short clips from their paperwork in English explaining what they're trying to do. But this is clearly a very laudable um, uh, event where people are trying to get as much information out about potential dangers of vaccines as they can. So well done to the people in France. Uh, Mm -hmm. And Alex, it appears that uh, the UK column has appeared on Right Move. Yes,
2: for those outside Britain, this is one of the most popular platforms on which people can get their properties sold. In this case, a two bedroom apartment uh, in a beautiful avenue in the amusingly named Bristol neighbourhood of Coom Dingle. Which uh, is not fiction; it's a, a real place. They have some funny place names around Bristol, uh, and as you can see there, in this, uh, it's a bit of an acquired taste, as the person tweeting it uh, noted. Uh, this this lime green uh, walled uh, modern, you know, high spec uh, living room in the apartment. Uh, there's a rather large flat screen TV on the wall, and look, there's UK Column playing, which, uh, according to the tweeter here, Alder is probably the first time we featured in a uh, real estate adverts. Sadly, the apartment does not come with its own Brian and Mike, so the new owner will have to tune into UK column for themselves. And before it. I forget to mention the conflict of interest, uh, Brian had spotted the same piece as me. Uh, that uh, National Institute of Health paper on uh, mental stress being that supposedly the cause of, of jab ill effects, the conflict of interest statement that was published at the top of that paper is that the author, Raymond D. Palmer, is Chief Science Officer of Full Spectrum Biologics. Uh, Clearly a completely irrelevant conflict of interest in writing that paper. Uh, A couple more things I've spotted. Really, these are very just much en passant. The Crown Prosecution Service, the uh, England and Wales um, uh, prosecutor on behalf of the state has come up with uh, a ridiculous piece uh, in a Northern Irish case uh, that's, or at least it's been published in Northern Ireland because the man's from there, the Belfast Newsletter's picked up on it. People can read those details uh, at any time. I'm not going to go through the the awful... um, uh, arguments the CPS uses here to say that it's no longer appropriate to quote the Bible in public. I put it in mention simply to say that it's David Icke and not just an author in his platform but I understand he personally writes the headlines and the memes for other people's submissions there. He is not a Christian and he's bothered to feature this and this is after several years of finding that Christians concerned about the loss of liberty would often say to me uh, UK Column and Brian Gerrish need to dissociate themselves and repudiate David Icke, and then they would be taken seriously by Christians. And look, it's davidike.com uh, that's noticing this, uh, that the Crown Prosecution Service as is, as Ike's uh, and his fellow author here correctly say, a cult-owned prosecution service. Uh, one more mention, which is really something I'm going to have to try to focus on another time, but there is a Dutch blog called Bowman and Boss Substack, uh, which has uh, published a long piece now on Dutch freedom of information, requests, WOB being the Dutch acronym for FOI, uh, and they're finding that the National Counterterrorism Coordinating Body, NCTV, which Vanessa recently reported on for us, has been on, at its job for a decade, and it's basically made itself the third, the newest, and the most com- uh, comprehensive uh, of the intelligence agencies, and it seems that it uh, it has a right to spy on political parties and all kinds of things unconstitutionally. So the Dutch are making quite a lot of progress in unearthing that, and we'll be trying to cover that in future.
1: Okay, Uh, and where does that take us to? The Australian government, uh, Department of Health and Aged Care.
2: Yes, one more mention for me, which I put in largely because Debbie's on with us. There is not much at federal level in the Australian system in healthcare, but they do have a Department of Health and Aged Care. And during this month, November, 2022, uh, somebody whose name has been blacked out at that federal department of health has replied to a questioner on whether the Australian government has established a medical indemnity scheme for health professionals admi- administering COVID-19 vaccines. And they reply, well, no, we haven't. But we have, under the former federal government, established a no-fault scheme instead, which has been just a short of a year in operation. Uh, and they're, they're doing this so that uh, support Uh, so that they can support increased participation by health professionals in the COVID-19 vaccination rollout. No concern for patient safety there on on face value at all. Just simply, we're telling doctors, nurses, and volunteers, uh, you have complete indemnity because we want you to jab more people, not because we think it's better for the public. And the TGA there is the Australian equivalent of the MHRA. It's the Therapeutic Goods Administration, and they throw in for good measure, we're closely monitoring the safety of COVID-19 vaccines and then they give a fob off one line reply to the other question about informed consent. So possibly yeah. Dave, Debbie will have a quick comment in passing there on this.
0: OK.
3: Oh, well, patient safety, very quickly, just patient safety. The whole subject of patient safety. Yet again, we're bringing that that term up.
0: Yes. OK, thank you very much for that section. Well, let's switch across to Ukraine. and We're going to go straight into uh, two little video clips from Channel 4 report from in the trenches at Kramatorsk and this was by the Channel 4 journalist Lindsay Hilson. Now I've got to say that this lady has put herself uh, in the front line and uh, we have to give her absolute credit for that. Uh, But let's have a little look at part of the report. We've taken this out of a slightly longer report. Let's have a look at it and uh, see what she has to say.
6: The outgoing machine gun fire from the Ukrainians is aimed at suppressing the Russians so they don't fire back. But the problem is that as long as there's firing from this position, there could be firing coming into us. And that's why we're waiting here in this trench and not moving. Three, two. One. After a few minutes of quiet, it's time for us to run across the open ground to the other trench. All safe. And now, down into the safety of the soldiers' sleeping quarters, which are warm and cosy. A necessity not a luxury, because they need to keep kit dry. And Vadim has a companion.
7: We have a friend. <laughs>
6: Olienka, the kitten, is just two months old.
7: She's a good warrior. She's a good yeah. fighter? Mouse. Oh, she gets the mice? Yeah. Yeah.
6: Life in Ukraine will be tough this winter and nowhere tougher than the trenches of Donetsk. The risk is only too clear. But Ukrainian soldiers know why they're fighting and what they must endure to win. It's perfectly possible that this trench warfare is going to continue through the winter without either side making any notable advances.
0: Well, my point on this, of course, uh, relatively quiet area of the front. So the public watching led to believe that that is the situation on the front, whereas the reality on the front is absolute bloodshed and carnage, particularly around Bakhmud. Um, But the scene is being set that this is going to be a long war. Yes, of course, because NATO is desperate to keep the war going and pump in the arms. And uh, she's quite happy with that situation, it would appear. So let's look at the second part of uh, the clip with this particular lady speaking.
6: And, you know, here in the background right now, even in Kramatorsk, I can hear the rumble of artillery. It's not clear how far away it is. Now, there's a NATO foreign ministers meeting tomorrow, and what they're going to concentrate on is the other threat, which is the Russians who are firing missiles at Ukraine's energy sector. That's the reason that so many towns in Ukraine don't have power, and some of them still don't have water. A lot of places, they haven't managed to restore that yet. So what NATO countries are likely to do is provide more air defenses, as well as generators and transformers, other things that will make civilians' lives just that little bit less difficult, I can't say easier, over the winter. But even as that is going on, the menu saw in that report Vadim, Yuri and others are going to be in those trenches fighting. And so are the Russians, the Russians who are their equivalents, many of them conscripts, the poor bloody infantry. And their kit may be worse and they may have less discipline. And discipline is one of the things you need to survive a winter in the trenches. Now, in 2022, just as it was more than a 100 years ago in another part of Europe.
0: Uh, Well, there we are. And very quickly, of course, we've got in that the Russians are incompetent in what they're doing, but this is just static warfare on the front, whereas the truth is completely different. But let's have a look at how uh, Ben Wallace has been manipulating uh, things in Ukraine. And I came across this really, I find it an astonishing picture of uh, Ben Wallace with uh, President Zelensky um, picture says a thousand words. What do you pick up from this one, Mike? The devious little conversation with an unkempt, uh, I'd call him dishevelled Tory salesman, Ben Wallace. What's he selling? Well, he's going to be selling more arms. He's going to be selling more war. He's going to be selling more death. But I was interested in that uh, very interesting expression of the lady looking at the... I believe it's an aid. I'm going to ask you for some help on this one, Alex. But I look at this picture, it disgusts me because this is the manipulation behind the scene to keep this war going and to keep thousands of casualties, possibly thousand casualties a day running. Um, What's your impression of this little gathering, Alex?
2: Well, I think you also should ask Charles Mallet, a Sandhurst graduate, because um... I, I do get the sense from that gentleman's profile and smirk that he's uh, an, an army officer. I'm perfectly willing to be corrected here, but uh, something like a, an adjutant or the equivalent at the the MOD. And these men do always. Defence secretaries, when they travel, do have these aides on hand, and you know, giving them their talking points. And when I interpret, I see this as well. The uh, the, the permanent secretaries and the advisors are actually running the show, and the secretaries and ministers are there really to, to stand here and say this as directed by these guys. So you know whether the joke originated with Wallace uh, is possible, but it may, it may have been uh, more likely that that the gentleman you just drew attention to is uh, is really keeping a closer eye on proceedings than, than just there to support Wallace.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, well, let's bring that image back on uh, on screen and have a look at what the real headline was. British Defence Minister uh, calls on the Ukrainian armed forces to maintain the pace of rapid attacks on occupiers throughout the winter. Uh, Well, the reality is that as a result of this sort of advice, small groups of Ukrainian soldiers without any form of armoured vehicle, with no air support, are attacking Russian positions, and they are being slaughtered in their thousands. So that despicable little meeting with a very scruffy Ben Wallace, but what's the result? Ukrainian and Russian soldiers going to die. Uh, these are some of the things that he said, given the advantage that Ukrainians have in training and the quality of their personnel compared to the demoralised, poorly equipped and trained Russians, it would be in Ukraine's interest to maintain the momentum gained during the winter. It would be in Ukraine's interest to keep the war going. Uh, But the reality is that Ukrainians are on the defensive at the moment and their limited attacks are being destroyed with incredibly heavy losses. Uh, the country's a wreck, there's no momentum forward, but there is momentum into a completely failed state. So well done, Ben Wallace. Uh, he went on, the Russians recently deployed a unit with no food, no socks, and few weapons. This is a disaster for a person who goes into the fields. Now, I'm pretty sure what we've got here is Ben Wallace report- uh, repeating Ukrainian propaganda, but it's cheap. It's uh, ridiculous and it's outrageous that he should be uh, uttering these sorts of words for uh, UK and Western ears to hear. Um, he said this the Russians have, have the scale, but they are not great. Well, most of those who were good soldiers are dead. Is this almost wishing that? Uh, the only good Russian soldier is dead. Is this what this man is saying? Quite possibly, but,
1: but even if there was any truth to that statement, if, if that's the case for Russia, what's the case for Ukraine?
0: Well, indeed. Well, I've just uh, put a banner o- over that uh, slide, Mike, because the reality is that the Russians have deployed strategic and tactical weapons, which have got technology and they're being deployed Uh, on a scale that the West is unable to counter. So this is quite a ridiculous statement by Ben Wallace. And uh, this uh, one here, only a nation that does not care about its own people can send 100,000 of its people to die, be wounded or desert. And the reality is that if there's a 100,000 casualty figure, This clearly applies to the Ukrainians and not the Russians, but we're getting the overall impression that Wallace is happy with the killing fields and his objective with this little conversation and others, of course, which he has on a regular basis is to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. Um, but of course the BBC is helping because all of a sudden Bakhmut where the main fighting is taking place at the moment has dropped off the uh, BBC map social commentators uh, are commenting on the importance of backwood, as of course they should but the bbc if you go searching for it uh, you're looking at old reports so the bbc does not want to report in the reality of what's going on uh, a better photo i'm not sure where this has come from so thank you for whoever the person was who took it But basically, um, Ukraine is now talking about a tenfold increase in dead and injured. So that Channel 4 report at the beginning, giving completely the wrong impression of what's happening. And uh, this would mean a tenfold increase would mean possibly a thousand dead Ukrainians a day. Uh, Meanwhile, Mike, I think you're going to show the suits. Who are the people helping keep this war going?
1: Well, indeed, as Lindsay Hilson said uh, in her report, uh, the um, Foreign Minister's meeting of NATO taking place yesterday and today in uh, Bucharest in Romania. Uh, and uh, so they're discussing their long term objectives for enhancing NATO's defences. Uh, They're strengthening their support for Ukraine, apparently, or at least they're talking about how they're going to do that. And they're talking about how they're going to enhance their long-term resilience. Uh, Now, Finland and Sweden are there. Uh, This is their first foreign ministerial meeting as NATO invitees, and this is ahead of their accession to the Alliance. Uh, And uh, that means that their membership takes NATO to 32 countries, so no expansion. Uh, no expansionist, uh, uh, expansionism going on there at all. Moldova is joining the meeting as a for, at foreign minister level for the first time in history uh, and the foreign ministers of Bosnia and Herzegovina and also the foreign minister of, Ge- uh, of Georgia also to be present at this meeting uh, because they're discussing their ongoing cooperation with NATO. Um, so uh, I just wanted to show this still from uh, the NATO uh, sort of press pack uh, and I just think Jens Stoltenberg well, gormless is the word that springs to mind there, Brian. He, he does not look competent. And in fact, his he's, actions demonstrate that he's not competent.
0: Uh, he's also looking jaded, Mike. I think the pressure is beginning to tell. But you don't want anybody who's too bright. You just need the puppet who will stand up and, and make the report that uh, the really powerful people want. So I think Stoltenberg is beginning to fail here. Yes. Okay, well, let's come back on the scene of the war. A couple of days ago, we reported on the BBC, uh, which had a statement about NATO. And uh, what did it say? It said this, that NATO is not training Ukrainian soldiers or providing Kiev with military support as an organization. Now, we said this was an absolute ridiculous claim because it's quite clear that NATO is doing everything it can to assist this uh, war. Um, but uh, before we comment further, let's have a look at this little video clip of the Ukrainian foreign minister, Mr. Kaliba, uh, speaking.
7: Iris, uh, hoax, patriots, and we need transformers. When we have transformers and generators, we can uh, restore our system, our energy grid, and provide people with decent living conditions which President Putin is trying to deprive them of. When we have air defense systems, we will be able to protect this infrastructure from the next Russian missile strikes, and they are definitely to come. Unfortunately, this is the reality that we have to prepare for. So, in a nutshell, Patriots and Transformers is what Ukraine needs the most, and we are discussing it here in Bucharest at the NATO Ministry.
0: So this says it all, when you've got a need, you go straight to NATO, but NATO claims it isn't really involved. But what a ridiculous request that over 50% of the national electricity infrastructure destroyed, and you're now going to get portable generators to solve the problem. Uh, This is a report from Radio Free Europe. Uh, NATO chief expects allies to step up air defense to support uh, Ukraine. Well, this is pure rhetoric because um, the West, whether it's the US or UK, NATO or the EU, has run out of weapons in volume and capability. This is obvious. It's being reported in many places by national media as well as international media. And so, presumably, Jens Stoltenberg doesn't understand what's happening, Mike.
1: Well, and indeed, as we mentioned on Monday's program, uh, Ben Wallace acknowledging that fact. Uh, Alex has a comment. We got time. Uh, Please do. Yes.
2: It is not just uh, weapons that the West has run out of. Heads of state and government in Western Europe are now openly saying we have run out of space and we have run out of money for Ukrainian support. Twelve of the 16 Bundesländer federal states in Germany are not taking in any more Ukrainian refugees. Did you see that reported in the BBC?
0: No. Well, no, of course not. Uh, well, let's um, let's bring Jens back up on screen because uh, another headline here, NATO foreign ministers set to address more support. And uh, he's talking about rebuilding the Ukrainian power, s- power system. But of course, at the moment, the Russians are targeting that deliberately to undermine the Ukrainian war effort. And uh, what does Stoltenberg think is going to happen if any of it is repaired. It's going to be destroyed again. So once again, we showed this as well, but this is how he's being ridiculed on social media and quite rightly so. But let's have a look at wider cooperation uh, with NATO. And uh, if people go to the NATO site, uh, we start to see amazing things here. Um, So in this uh, particular paragraph, we're talking about building Ukraine's capabilities and interoperability with NATO forces. So to say that there is no uh, partnership between Ukraine and NATO is simply ridiculous. Uh, But if we go down, we see a whole plethora of different initiatives, different sorts of warfare, command and control. And this really shows how big uh, this interaction with Ukraine is. And of course, the assistance is both lethal and non-lethal. If we... um, well okay that makes the claim not credible which uh, we've already said uh, but we can also go in this direction where nato appears to also be handling funds and we've got a number of different trust funds here uh, if we pop uh, this one up on screen this is to do with getting rid of weapons and mines which was apparently happening uh, back in the uh, in 2010 Uh, uh, but if we follow it through, although there's claims that NATO has been helping to demilitarise Ukraine, uh, the reality is clearly false, because if we come to this segment where it's talking about butterfly mines, Ukraine has been using these in the battle in the Donbass, and so clearly uh, NATO has failed on this particular funded programme. But this is where we get where it becomes very interesting. Are we just dealing with NATO? Or are we dealing with an embryonic uh, one world military system? Because here's partners within NATO cooperation, leave people to have a look at the nations uh, listed on screen, but a great number of them. Or we could go to another group, which is partners across the globe. Or we can come into NATO's Mediterranean dialogue and the Eastern East, sorry, Istanbul Cooperation Initiative. So it appears that really we have a world military system coming together under NATO, and it's very easy to see this from their own uh, documentation. Um, social media uh, commentators uh, coming in here, uh, pointing out that, of course, the Ukrainians just expecting more and more supplies to come in. And uh, they're also pointing out that, of course, if NATO puts in more weapons, even if it's got their own operators with it, those are going to be destroyed. Uh, But it's not only the weapons, it's soft loans. And uh, this was some detail from Ukrainian news. And uh, let's have a look at the figures here. A loan of up to 100 million euros in that particular one. And if we follow through here, we're talking about three billion US dollars a month. Uh, We're talking about a 2.5 billion macro financial assistance from the EU, 2 billion of macro financial assistance from the European Union as a result of a different programme, 500 million euros, and uh, at the bottom 1.5 billion US dollars, uh, which has come from the trust fund of the World Bank. And if you think uh, that must be enough to uh, Zelensky, you're wrong. Let's have a look at this little clip.
7: Для мене честь представляти українську кандидатуру на проведення всесвітньої виставки 2030 року. Представляти Одесу, а отже і увесь Чорноморський регіон. Чому саме Одеса? Чому саме Україна? Чому саме Чорне море? Цьогоріч Україна стала світовим взірцем сміливості. І мільярди людей на усіх континентах побачили, що означає українська незламність і чому російський терор не досягне своєї мети. І побачить, як Україна стане взірцем відбудови. Ані зимовий холод, ані темрява, ані будь-які інші прояви терору не допоможуть Росії підкорити українців. Прийде час української перемоги. А тоді відбудова нашої держави стане найважливішим економічним, технологічним і гуманітарним проєктом нашого часу. Вже зараз ми залучаємо десятки країн-партнерів до відновлення України. Загальний обсяг робіт – понад трильйон доларів. Коли у 2030 році ви відвідаєте Україну та нашу Одесу, Ви зможете відчути силу, свободу і культуру не просто однієї країни і одного міста. Ви відчуєте потенціал усього людства.
0: So uh, Alex, I'll just come back to you on that. Is that a is that a comedy script? Is it a comedy script? I'm not sure, but a trillion it would seem to fit with all the other evidence we've got
2: it's about three registers below formal Ukrainian. He's not a native speaker. He made a big d- deal of that before he was elected president. He was saying, can can us Russian speakers be left alone to live in peace in this country? Uh, his his choice of words is odd in Ukrainian, talking about Nashor or desu, our Ukraine. And that gravelly voice, I know he's got his wartime act, but, you know, he's sounding like one of these Soviet-era singers of baladi there, you know, give me my smoke and let me out of the clink. It's a... Uh, it's a particular gravelly voice he's putting on to be a, you know, a hero. Of course, he specialises in entertainment, but no, I, I think that was not directly scripted for him. But he has in mind certain Soviet era sort of gulag folk hero uh, singer models in his mind as as he uh, you know uh, reels off his
0: pattern. Okay. Well, we don't know whether a, a trillion is reality. Is that clip real? Uh, what we do know is that if we look at all the other documentation, vast amounts of money being pumped into Ukraine together with the arms, very little over control, uh, very uh, very little oversight over what has gone where, be it the weapons or the money. Um Alex,
2: we're going to do a very quick segment in uh, Brazil because we have the fortune of a translator having contacted me. Uh, and has done a very good job uh, gisting what's been going on since the contested election result uh, in which uh, Jair Bolsonaro, of course, was booted out in favor of Lula, the uh, socialist uh, challenger. And people will remember that uh, Alexandre de Moraes, the Supreme Court head, who also sits in the Electoral Tribunal, is basically judge, jury and executioner. He's taken on the role of all three branches of government. And uh, in in Brazil, they also talk about the, the military being the fourth pillar making four branches. And you can see here that uh, generals are quite involved in resisting. Uh, Bolsonaro has not called for for the army to mount a coup d'etat. He's repeatedly said that he's waiting for orders from the public so that he will not be a tin pot dictator who just seizes power. Uh, But here we have uh, a gist by our viewer. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro was meeting with General Brago Neto and commanders of all three service branches. Um, In a WhatsApp group, General Neto stated that Brazil is experiencing a serious political impasse, especially with the confirmation of an illegal and fraudulent electoral process imposed by the the Supreme Supreme Court and the Electoral Tribunal. All of this under the, this is very strong words for a serving general, autocratic, arrogant and illegal leadership of Minister Alexandre de Moraes. I repeat, he's a judge, he's not a politician, he's not a legislator, uh, he's uh, he's not anything else other than a judge, but he's giving orders to police and all kinds of stuff. Uh, let's see more examples uh, of that. We've got here um, uh, a, a, a video which is playing silently in the background as I read what's going on. These are all the people whom Mordi Moraes through his two courts has silenced. Sara Winter is under house arrest. The next gentleman, Alan Dos Santos, is now a refugee in the US and hasn't seen his family for two years. This news channel, Terzo Livre TV, had all its accounts closed, its doors closed, and dismissed 80 staff. Oswaldo Isterqui, who is now in a wheelchair, having been beaten by police, has been arrested four times for two years past now. Uh, Marcelo Frazau, a professor, was fined the equivalent of £10,000 and lost his channel. Uh, Marco Sintra here, fighting a legal action for criticising the vote, and he's been taken off the internet. Wellington Macedo was a journalist who's wearing an ankle collar for criticising the, uh, the, the the Supreme Court. Uh, I'm having to skip some because there's so many. Pastor Andre Valadao lost all his media profiles for criticising the uh, Supreme Court and the tra- election court. Um, Judge Ludmila is fighting a legal battle for criticising Jim and lost all her media accounts. On- a new channel here has been uh, uh, had its channels seized. Uh, Bob Jeff here is a- another one who's lost all his uh, uh, rights. Um, This goes on and on. You can see some, you know, this is a lot of professional people, judges, clergymen, journalists, these comedians have lost their profiles. Uh, It's the the worst kind of Canadian and and European stuff is happening in Brazil. And we actually have a man to blame for it all in this case. Timurayesh and his two courts uh, are actually issuing orders to these uh, these Internet uh, people and in many cases, real world actions to arrest people. And I I repeat, there's been uh, some Uh, long-term disquiet in Brazil um, so that figures like this Oswaldo Eustáquio who you saw who's now wheelchair-bound after being beaten and and detained so often, he's been at this for a couple of years and people who can read Portuguese or make some sense of it can see the the bare bones of it. Uh, Monarch is one of the most popular uh, podcasts in the country. He was demonetized by YouTube and lost his channel after a Brazilian court order for criticizing electronic voting machines. And there are hundreds of others, says the final text on screen, who've been silenced by Jimo two courts, the Supreme Court and the Electoral Tribunal. Uh, so this is really going to, to go places, but uh, not you know, the usual Latin American disorder yet. Just a still that's on screen next, you can see uh, Jair Bolsonaro, the outgoing president, has been saying for a couple of months that he's ready for war, uh, but while he was speaking in the more equatorial Paraná state in the north, where people are a bit more hot headed, He was quick to say, I will not go to war without you. I will not start commanding the army. But it is a rather desperate situation that's uh, developed. And here is a gist again by our translator of what Bolsonaro has said, that's in green. He says, we not only have the money thieves of the past, but a new class of thief has appeared. They wish to steal our freedom. And he says, we cannot imagine uh, seeing this situation go on for a couple of years, but we're not going to go down the dysfunctional route of other Latin American countries. Uh, So we'll see how far uh, this manages to get. The translator makes a note here that the protesters are asking for the restoration of the separation of powers. People can freeze the screen and read all of that. They're being, like their European Portuguese um, uh, co lusophones they're being very constitutional about their demands and they know what their rights are. And uh, here's a key point by this uh, translator. Brazilians are sick of the lies in the European press. If you listen to the European press, you'd believe that there were hardly any trees left in Brazil but there's so many forests as far as the eye can see. So this is being bound up with you know, the usual grudge that Brazilians are being falsely uh, reported. Uh, we can see here in just a few seconds of silent footage that the Conselho Tutelar, the uh, Guardian's Council, again operated by judges and judicial orders, turned up on the picket lines in the 18th of November, not many days ago, and tried to take the children away from these protesters. And they were beaten back, as you can see, with a minimum of force, just a bit of shoving rather than anything worse than that. Um, this was on Avenue Fernandes Lima in Maceu, uh in Brazil. Um, and regarding that particular footage, our translator has one final comment, which is that, well, I won't read it all, but basically Brazil isn't as degenerate as Europe or North America or Australasia yet, in that you cannot, by court order, uh, seize, uh, seize children and basically sell them to others for adoption or, or agency care for, uh, for profit. Uh, all they can do is uh, give the children from the parents to the grandparents So some states, as as the translator writes, are on Bolsonaro's uh, side. Um, Quite a desperate situation, but we would encourage people in other language areas who uh, share my profession of translator to send me more or less ready-made material. Uh, And if we judge it, I'm sure it will be up to spec, we'll very gladly feature it as I'm running short of time with all the other things I do for UK Column now to go fishing for foreign language material myself.
1: Okay. Thank you for that, Alex. Uh, now let's uh, come back to the issue of life sciences. Debbie, and we were talking about this on Monday, uh, but you want to highlight the model for the future?
3: Yeah, I would like to, because um, it's now been announced that the government's going to use a vaccine task-, task force approach, which means they're going to invest £113 million into research. Now this is research, folks. This isn't help or therapies or any kind of support this is just research so cutting edge research cancer mental health obesity and addiction is what we're going to go for um and it's absolutely terrifying because it it says what we've been saying all along in that the UK is going to be first and foremost on the planet for life sciences and we're going to be apparently the first population to benefit. I can't see any benefit from it. And and be pleased because Kate Bingham, remember Oxford, AstraZeneca, um, Dame Kate Bingham, who did the lecture with Dame June Rain, nothing like a dame, uh, she's running it. So we should be extremely reassured. But let's just go back to the life sciences vision. Because if you look at the life sciences vision, and this is where it gets really scary. This was uh, Boris Johnson, under Boris Johnson in 2021. And if you look at what it says, I mean, please freeze the screen, but the bullet points are are they, they want to make the UK the best place to trial and test products at scale. The NHS will be the biggest driver of innovation. They'll adopt new policies at population scale using new technology and they'll create a business environment for life sciences companies. And of course, the firepower of the City of London um, is going to be um, in the centre of this as well. But who's, who's actually in charge of it? So if we actually go and look at who've been, who's been writing this along with Boris Johnson, we can see a few familiar names. We can see Professor Sir John Bell, who's the um, Professor of Medicine at Oxford, we've got Sajid Javid, we've got Kwasi Kwarteng, Lord David Pryor and Sir Jonathan Simons. Now, I'm not gonna go into depth into this, but I just want you to know that these are teaming up with the NHS and the MHRA. So basically, the UK is exactly what we've said it is, is (laughs) an experimental laboratory and we are the lab rats. But if we just go one, one frame on and look at the preconditions for success, because that's where it gets really interesting. And I want you to find this empowering because it says that the NHS is critical to the delivery of nearly every element of the vision, the life sciences vision. It also says the UK is punching above its weight globally, but we are second and third in the university stakes. So you can see Harvard's number one and Cambridge and Oxford two and three. It says the NHS has Potentially the richest longitudinal health data in the world but more importantly and this is where it gets exciting I think because it should empower absolutely everyone it says the life sciences vision can only achieve it with the support of the public NHS and patients so this is what we've been saying right from the get-go and I know it's a very quick whiz through life sciences but I just want you to to understand everybody watching that the NHS is the unique selling point. If we buy into the NHS and we constantly want to remodel the NHS into into the future, fast forward, into the, the medical metaverse, et cetera, and AI, then this is what we're heading for. But it can only it can only work if we make it work. And if we don't make it work, it will all collapse. So my advice to everyone watching is go and look at that life sciences report, because clearly you'll see the NHS isn't for you anymore. It really isn't. Um, but we can stop this. They need us in order for this to happen. So if they need us equally, if we don't, uh, if, if, if we don't do what they say, then they can't push forward their agenda.
1: OK, now, uh, Debbie, I just want to very, very briefly touch on this, because we the less said about oh. Matt Hancock, the, the, the better, but Uh, Nonetheless, your point here is that this whole idea of celebrity is just ridiculous.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm not even going to waste the time on it. Have a look at the slide and you'll see exactly what I mean, Jonathan Van Tam. We knew he was going to get up to something. Well, he wouldn't catch me in a labor ward with him, that's for sure. But I'll let everyone else make up their mind. But it just seems that we've gone completely celebrity crazy.
1: So he's going to take up a role on BBC's Call The Midwife. Excellent. Uh, what could possibly Yeah, and Matt want?
3: Hancock, by the way, Matt Hancock's upset. Every uh, he's upset the I'm a Celebrity crew apparently because he'd already signed up for SAS, this SAS um, television series. So now he's going to be the new political uh, political bear grills. Not.
1: No. Uh, okay, uh, Alex. Let's just end w- with this uh, an update on what's going on in Wales.
2: We have, and people should find this on publicchildprotectionwales.org, but it's a press release that uh, Lou Collins of Liberty Tactics tipped me off to last night. Um, For those who haven't been following the backstory, it's about the sexualization of children. I I promise an article, I can't promise a date, but there's so much to report on the legal uh, uh, outcome of this judicial review. Uh, Let's just whiz through this. Um, A judicial review doesn't have cross-examination or oral evidence, so it was two days Uh, Paul Diamond was the barrister uh, who represented the 5,000 people summarised by five petitioners uh, for this judicial review and really conducted himself magnificently. No solicitor or pre-trial lawyer could be found in the whole of Wales to take this on, it was too hot, Um, but uh, Darren has uh, been been on the team and has given Liberty Tactics the key interview, which I got most of the uh, interesting details from, and people will find that link there. But in layman's terms, it became clear in the judicial review because people bothered to raise funds and turn up. It became clear that the Welsh Government had overstepped the mark and all the people who were sniffing, this is only Muslims who won't uh, adapt to our way of life, or uh, have you read the curriculum? There's nothing in there about sexualizing three-year-olds. This is what the judicial, judicial review flushed out. The Welsh Government had no benchmarks. The curriculum hadn't been written and they were just leaving it to UNESCO uh, to set the detail. And that was exactly the point of the judicial review. The written uh, uh, verdict, of course, will take some weeks uh, to to come out. And on the second day, uh, the Welsh Government defended itself and they did a very sheepish and poor job, uh, made some extraordinary claims, the key one of which was that until human rights legislation of our generation, parents never had any rights to uh, decide what their children were taught at school. This is how far gone the thinking has gone now in the in the Welsh Government and other devolved administrations and in England too. Uh, the Welsh Government will be continuing to ignore its will at the will of the people says PCP Wales but it's done us an indirect favour by putting these statements on record for the public which is a key thing about judicial review. This is now English case law whatever happens. Uh, they go on to say that the close of proceedings allowed Paul Diamond for the uh, petitioners representing the Welsh Mothers Uh, to refute the government's claims of misinformation. You'll recall a whole think tank was set up to call everyone right-wing extremists who were concerned about this in Wales. And the whole school approach, the lack of parental choice, uh, gender ideology and queer theory. This has all been read into the record. And the final part of the uh, slide is particularly of interest to those in legal fraternity who are wondering whether they and wrestling with their conscience, should I step up to the plate in such cases? Well, you should. Because as they correctly write write in the final heading of the PCP Wales uh, press summary, we won the day we stood up. We changed the world the day we stood together. Uh, And you can, quite literally, like Mr. uh, Bull Diamond, the barrister here, you can walk out of uh, uh, court to a hero's welcome while the uh, government side literally file out the back sheepishly, uh, getting booed by the crowd. If only you'll do your duty, you will be amazed how much support the public will have for you. And uh, I think that takes us on to one finally, doesn't it? A couple of memes here. Here is Dr. Tedros of the World Health Organization changing his tune uh, in a a satire variant, of course. In May, he's saying the jab offers you 95 protection. In June, he says 70% protection. In July, 50% protection. In August, he says it doesn't protect you, but it reduces the spread. In September, he says, well, it doesn't actually reduce the spread either, but it does reduce the severity of the symptoms. In October, he says, It doesn't reduce the severity of the symptoms, but it does reduce hospitalizations that protect the NHS. In November, it doesn't reduce hospitalizations either, but it means you're not going to die. And the prediction is that next month, Dr. Tedros will say, you die if you take the jab, but you do go to heaven. (laughs) And uh, one more, which is the uh, uh, ever uh, beloved Bob Moran in a a new format. He's continuing his his ordinary Twitter and uh, Telegram platform as Bob Moran. But look, he's also involved in notourfuture.org, where he's calling upon people to sign a pledge against digital future, which we've been covering through a digital identity we've been covering the whole of this episode. Uh, So here we are, the the future, unless you break through the wall into the sunlit uplands, is quarantine cages, stay safe messages, two hours to curfew warnings, social credit bank, uh, queues for the southern fried crickets stall, uh, and people being herded into the test and jab pod. Well, I'd be with the family whose uh, father has uh, done what men do and Bob likes to encourage men to be men in his cartoons. He's taken a sledgehammer hammer, and he's busted a hole through the wall.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, Excellent. Uh, well, a good point to end on. And uh, yes, can we also emphasise the tremendous work that the ladies in Wales have done uh, to stand up against this appalling religious and sex education? And I'm quite sure if more mums and dads across the country really understood what's coming and of course most of the um, origins of of that education have come from the UN Uh, but if they knew about it they would also be standing up so we'll ask our viewers and listeners to help us spread the word back in a couple of minutes for some extra okay we will see you then thank you for joining us bye-bye